everybody just want to give you a quick thank you for checking out the show and being with us for all these technical difficulties and what have you uh so the following episode you're going to listen to is just going to be me talking about the films i saw at new Yorkation film festival in japan cuts and this is going to be a very rough episode i'm still not that confident about uh talking for extended periods of by myself especially and this episode was more or less just a, a way for me to test my mic to see if we have resolve the first issues that plagued the first episode you know we're getting all those mistakes out at the beginning so that if we keep doing when and if we keep doing this you know it, it becomes better moving forward so again thank you and on to the show Welcome to a bonus episode of Ega Night, two amateur film scholars' journey through Japanese cinema. Today, uh, it's just me, Chris, Lucy, Antonio, flying solo here because a little scheduling conflict made it really difficult for me and Aruba to meet together and record. So instead of our normal format, where we're going to take a Japanese film, uh, discuss it between the two of us, break it down essentially, it's just going to be me, uh, doing something a little bit different here. For those of you who don't know, I am a contributor to filmpulse.net, a uh, entertainment news review site. And a month ago, uh, we were doing coverage for the New York Asian Film Festival and Japan Cuts. If you don't know what those are, they are two film festivals held in New York, centering mainly around uh, modern Asian cinema uh, for the New York Asian Film Festival. And we were lucky enough to get some screeners for that and cover it and i took it upon myself to hog all of the japanese film as i am want to do so uh i think for this episode for this extra episode because we can't do the normal format because it's nothing without a ruby here with me i thought i'd just go over some of the films that i saw during there what i've covered and again you can check out all these reviews for these films up on filmpulse.net so without further ado let's get into it uh one of the first ones i saw was the new one from hirokazu karita the new palm door winner actually which is fantastic for him this is not the one that won him the palm door this is the third murder his break into a crime and court drama genre film here uh it has a lot of his touches in it it's very much about ambiguity between the witnesses and the actual person accused of the murder who's a confessed to it uh it's mostly about the defense attorneys rallying around the person accused of the murder to figure out what his disposition is and try and probe into what's truth and separate the fact from the fiction of what he's telling them. It's very much a confusing film to follow. It kind of props itself up as a thriller, although it doesn't work that way. It's it's an alright film. It's I think it, it works pretty well, uh, but it, there's a lot of moralizing in it, which I just can't get behind uh there is a lot of soapbox speeches uh that's kind of masqueraded as dialogue in this film and i just can't get behind that it's it's very preachy and i just feel that karita would have more tact than to get into that kind of level there but regardless it's a very 
well-constructed film, very beautiful, as you expect a Korea film to be, and some excellent performances in there, especially from the uh, accused murderer, who uh, Koji Yakushu, very very talented Japanese actor. Uh, you've seen him in a bunch of things. He's worked with uh, Kiyoshi Kurosawa a lot of times. So yeah, I say I recommend that film. It, it's very interesting, but it's not Kurita operating on his highest possible level. He's capable of much better, more thought-provoking work than that. Okay, then the next one I saw was Dynamite Graffiti. This was a fascinating one. This is essentially a profile, a biopic, about the Japanese equivalent of Larry Flint Jr., I'd say, uh, Kirasui. He got his start uh, in Japan in, like, the Red Light District, uh, making erotic advertisements and stuff like that. He was a graphic designer before eventually graduating up into uh, taking photos for adult magazines and then creating his own empire by the 1980s and essentially running the Japanese porn business by himself and a group of his hangers-on. Uh, the film is essentially about that rise from obscurity into being Japan's most prolific pornographer. It's a very, very dynamic film, which is a lot of fun to watch. Uh, when the film gets into its strides is when it's just detailing all of the salacious details of the Japanese porn industry from the 1970s up until the 1990s. It's very detailed, it's very uh, informed and researched about this topic. It's kind of like a Boogie Nights type deal, where... A lot of the fun is just seeing how this business operates from a like professional third party level where it's not judging, it's not moving into it with any inquiry, it's just showing what took place and just bringing you into that world. It's very good at that. Uh, the problem is it's a bit of a failure as a biopic because the main figure of it, Akira Sui, does not get much inquiry put on him. We don't really probe into his personality, his character, even really his history. There's this ongoing motif of this seminal moment in his youth that keeps coming up as a like uh, throughout his life of his mother's suicide, but the film doesn't really do much with it. Uh, you'd think that'd be the motivating factor for his degradation and to his move into deprived business, but no, it's just kind of there. Uh, yeah, it doesn't really work as a biopic, because I, th I believe Akira Sui is a very fascinating figure. Like, the entire movie was based off his autobiographical essay that he published, which I've read, and it's, he seems like a very interesting character. He's a very confrontational one. And uh, lead actor Tetsuko Emoto, uh, he does a good job of that. He, he's a, it's a very dynamic performance, and a, everyone across the cast, again, it's a very filled-out cast. But at the same time, it just there's this unknowable quality to, the, to what he's portraying that he doesn't really get across, and I just wish that the film was a bit more, like, investigative into the character of Akira Sui, but it, it never does, and... That's why Dynamite Graffiti is a bit of a mixed bag. It's still very, very fun to watch. It, like the when, like I said, when it gets into the details of the Japanese porn industry, it's it's like 100% entertainment. But beyond that point, it's very hard to get into because the, the character just isn't there. And moving on, uh, the next one I saw was uh, Kakakomi, uh, directed by Masa Masato Harada, a legendary director uh, who's been working since the 1970s and 80s. Uh... It's a very unremarkable 
Jidaigeki, unfortunately. It's about a home for battered women, essentially, where any woman who is seeking a divorce from their husband can get shelter uh, at uh, Kakomi for uh, for like a promise of working there for a while. And our main characters uh, go there to seek shelter from their various bad relationships. And it's a very long film. It's It spends so much time holed up in this uh, safety zone trying to figure out what to do with time. And it just doesn't work. It's so... It's boring. It's very boring, unfortunately. Uh, shot beautifully, by the way. It's a very, like, pleasing film to the eye, but it's just so empty and vacant in terms of where it's going with itself. Uh, there are some details around the background of the Edo period uh, counterfeiters and black market and how everyone is in that period is looking for liberation, but... Yeah, it just doesn't go anywhere, and the t the tonal problems it has, it doesn't want to know. It doesn't know if it wants to be a serious drama or a lighthearted, goofy comedy. Uh, one of the main characters, Nobujiro Nakamura, played by uh, Yo Oizumi, he's essentially a clown, Charlie Chaplin figure, uh, thrown into this very, almost very serious drama about women seeking their independence. It it just doesn't work. That like combination of ideas and themes it makes it the film very awkward and i just don't think it works that well i love um masato harada's work especially like uh film his early films like kamikaze taxi obviously but uh this one just really let me down and i just couldn't get behind it and the disappointments kind of kept going on with that because uh, the next film i took in was the blood of wolves directed by kazuya shiriashi i believe his name is uh, I don't have the notes in front of me, unfortunately. Uh, this is a Toei film, which is very much a Yakuza throwback to uh, the genre films of the 1970s and 80s. Uh, in fact, it's set in 1988 in Hiroshima. It's taking a lot of pages from uh, Kenji Fukasaku and the way he would do one of these uh, Yakuza epics. It's a bit incomprehensible, unfortunately, because the plot gets really, really muddied pretty fast. It's about these two uh, detectives, Shogo Ogami and Shuichi Hioka, played by, again, Koji Yakusha and Tori Matsusaka, uh, respectively. And it's there's a lot of layers going on. They're looking into two warring families in Hiroshima over the recent death of a financial advisor for one of the gangs. And on top of that, uh, Shuichi Hioka is looking into his partner Ogami, uh, who is corrupt to the nines, and he's trying to prove that to his superiors. It's, again, a very long film. It's like two hours, two and a half hours, and it just really drags, unfortunately. There are some moments of flourish and some moments of action that kind of pick it up here and there, but it never really comes out to anything that dynamic or worth the long out, long t stretches of time that you're spent in the dark trying to figure out where it's going. I keep saying this, but a lot of these films are shot very well. Shiriashi tries to do the frenetic Fukusaka style. He, he doesn't nail it, obviously, because who can? But he, he puts up a good substitute for it. His film is very uh, readable visually. Unfortunately, his script could use work. But yeah, if you're looking for a bloody, violent throwback to the Yakuza era of filmmaking in Japan, you could do worse, but you could also do better. 
like with the uh, works of Takashi Miike, he he would blows this type of film right out the water. It's a very polished film, unfortunately too. You can tell that a lot of money went into it to make it look grimy and old, and it just feels artificial. But I had some enjoyment out of it. The action's very dynamic. The character acting is very, very good again, because, again, we're dealing with uh, Koji here. But, yeah, it was hard to get enthusiastic about it near the end when it just been dragging that long. So, yeah, see that one if you can, but I don't recommend it. Uh, and then moving on is one that I absolutely recommend. It's uh, River's Edge, directed by, I believe that's Isayo Yukisada? Yeah, I think that's the right name. Uh, this is a devastating film. It's this very, like, nihilistic portrait of teenagers and youth uh, living by a polluted river. It just really goes the whole yard of showing how despicable these kids can be, and it's just enthralling to watch it's a it's a very like a todd solens type film where you just know that beneath the innocent like casing of a child there's just like this deep dark disturbing element that we don't really understand but we but we love to just kind of take in and watch and it gets so much mileage out of that it is a heartbreaking film and to the what it puts these kids through and i just say go watch this movie it it really just bowled me over the the time i watched it it very very interesting movie so that's all i can really say about that just go watch it moving on to the hungry lion by ogata takomi uh first female director of the festival by the way these are all new york asian film festival films and i don't know how to really deal with this one it tries to be a very realistic portrayal of what happens in a high school when rumors get out of hand. Uh, the main character is accused, essentially, of having sex with the teacher. The teacher uh, resigns in shame, and the main character just goes about her life uh, trying to shake these rumors, but they just kind of start building up and building up and eventually ruin her life. It's a very gradual portrayal of this idea of like the spreading fire of a rumor and how much damage it can do it's really hard to watch because of that it's a lot of it is just taken in these very slow deliberate nothing scenes where nothing particularly interesting or plot intensive happens it just to, to just to remind you that life goes on no matter what but and then just gradually and i mean very very gradually you just start to see the effects of this rumor being up in the air at the school and going between all the different student groups, you start to hear more and more like talk of her behind her back and how all of this is just building up to crush her. It tries to be like a very timely film because, you know, we're living in the era of fake news and what have you and post-truth facts and all this Trump bullshit. But it just doesn't... I don't know. I don't think it's very successful because it it's a very, again, preachy film. It's moralizing this whole idea and... The way it portrays it is just so in your face and over the top. I, I know it's, it's very like slow and meditative and almost quotidian in the way it does it, but you just know it's pushing this very clear agenda towards you and without any really tact. And I, I don't know, I, I felt this idea could be done a lot better. It's, it's a fascinating film though, because you don't see this level of inquiry into this very isolated incident of a rumor spreading in a high school. That's fascinating how much detail uh, Ogata put into this, but yeah, I I was just it was just hard to really care because of it because 
the characters aren't defined that well uh because they don't have to because it's real it's real life and then after like a tragic incident the film just keeps going and then puts down a soapbox to get on you about the horrors of rumor spreading in high schools and i just didn't have time for that and the disappointments kept coming after that i took in the sicilian lamb by daihaichi yoshida this was not a good movie. It's a very boring, confused film where it doesn't know where its priorities are, unfortunately. It's about uh, six strangers uh, moving to a decaying port city, uh, and all six of these strangers are part of like a repopulation program where they're taking uh, convicted felons from the local prison and moving them into a decaying port city to hopefully like, rejuvenate the population there and the uh, community. And... You'd, you'd think that would uh, lead to some fun interactions between those six characters, or at least like six very isolated, very interesting stories. But unfortunately, it has its uh, priorities all in the wrong places. It's much more about the uh, person handling the case, their caseworker, and how and integrating them into that society. And one specific uh, person of those six, who is clearly going to be the one to break and go back to prison in like a spectacular fashion. And yeah, again, this is a very like long film, two hours. It just doesn't go anywhere. It's very, I, I don't like to use the term boring to describe a film because, you know, someone else might find this interesting, but I just wasn't here for it. It just drags its heels through all this repetitive breaking in scenes of these people trying to adjust to the outside world. And it's just not very interesting. The characters are well played, but they're not well defined. They're not, they're not like well written. Yeah, I, I didn't like this film at all, unfortunately. But you know, shot well. <laughs> that's that's all. That's all I got to say. And then things picked up with my next film I saw, which was *Smoking on the Moon*, directed by Yoshihiro Tanaka from uh, his manga, based on his manga. And this was a very dynamic film. Uh, you don't really see Japanese stoner comedies that often, and this one was wild and crazy from the get-go it's what you can really break it down to if you wanted to give like a one sentence summary is that wild stoner comedy gets serious because this is a expert class this film is an expert class in tonal bait and switch because at the beginning it almost has this like anarchist punk sensibility both in its visuals and its ideas that it's throwing at you because uh like, for the first 30 minutes, there's barely a plot attached to this. It's just these two guys, uh, Rokuto Hoshina and Sota Amaya, uh, d played respectively by Ryo Narita and Arata, Arata Irua. God, I, I'm really bumbling these names here. And, yeah, there's a lot of vignettes, essentially, of them living their lives in this abandoned apartment. Uh, and there is no structure to it. It's just scene upon scene of anarchy weirdness and experiment experimental visuals like the first half hour cycles through at least i'd say five or six different visual styles including animation just assaulting you over the head with all these different styles and being just very loud and obstructive it, it's very like interesting for the first half hour and then it kind of starts to weigh on you a bit because you realize like is the whole two-hour film going to be like this? Because this is going to get old really fast. But then, like, at the 40-minute mark, when these two uh, run afoul of some Yakuza and, like, break up with each other, essentially, and go their separate ways, then the film becomes this very serious portrayal of uh, Rakuto getting 
inducted into the Yakuza as like a serious drug dealer and the, the effects it has on his family and his son. And like you have absolutely no idea where this kind of pseudo seriousness comes from, but it, it works because it completely commits to it. It drops all of the fun and excitement of the first half hour and just brings you into this really sobering tale. I think that it works. I might be alone in that because tonal inconsistencies really piss a lot of critics off. I, me, me, myself, one of them. But I don't know. I, I was kind of like, I got into how sincere and sweet it was being by the end when one of the characters suddenly is dealing with a leukemia diagnosis and leaving these tearful messages to all his friends. It's like, what happened to all that anarchist sensibility from the first 20 minutes? What happened? It just disappeared and this is a completely different film like and i kind of wanted to hate it but i don't know i i think I'm just, i just got a little bit soft for it from like seeing this character in his prime of being a crazy asshole to what he is at the end completely hunched over and vulnerable i i think it's a very effective portrayal of that and i don't know i was here for it uh smoking on the moon a very very interesting film and then next was a the one Japanese film, the one non-Japanese film from New York Asian Film Festival that I took in, uh, it's a Malaysian film called The Coon, who was originally filmed in 2006. This is actually quite a uh, famous lost film. It's based on the real story of Mona Fandi, a once mildly popular Malaysian singer who turned witch doctor uh, by the end of her career and was eventually uh, convicted of murder in 1993 and sentenced to death. Now, not even like 10 years after that, uh, director Dayan Said took the story and made a film of it in 2006 and was instantly maligned by controversy for him making light of the dead like that and him playing with the facts of this very real case which like the most bizarre murder in malaysia's history and the film was shelved for 12 years this is like uh, 2018 was the year that it finally got out into the public there was a couple of um instances where some leaked copies got online here and there but yeah, this is the first time that it's been, like, made public to anybody, and it's a very chaotic film. It, you can tell what, instantly why they wanted to shelve it, because it is just, it just really portrays a Mona Fandi, like, the actual killer uh, of the true crime story, into this caricature of a malevolent witch. She's, like, cackling constantly, she is, like, putting spells on people, she's possessing herself. It's, it is bizarre. It is a very, it's a lot of fun though as a thing. It's kind of salacious and that's what you're here for when you're watching the film realizing that they are completely playing with the facts and like making light of a very, like a very serious murder of a politician, uh, Datuk Maslin Idris, I believe his name is. I'm just reading it off Wikipedia so I hope that's the correct pronunciation. Yeah, and like it, it attaches all these like really unfortunate side stories to it to make it more like a film rather than like, you know, a professionally done court drama it adds on all of these things with like the head investigator and him trying to find his missing daughter and this team of investigators working on a separate murder case when they realize that it's actually related to uh mona fandy and how it's apparently she's run the biggest witch doctor murder ring in the entirety history in the entire history of the country and yeah it gets really really crazy by the end of it and I, I don't know, I was here for it. It's it's a bit kind of, 
you kind of feel like you want to take a shower after watching it because you realize like oh this filmmaker man he's just he's just saying stuff about this crime isn't he but you know if you're here for the insanity of it all i say go with it i say watch the kun because it's a it's actually a lot of fun once you get past like the that kind of initial layer of disgust you have to deal with when you're dealing with like a true crime dramatization which just plays with the facts a lot but yeah i'd say go watch that film and the next one is an absolute recommend this is like my second favorite film from new york asian film festival with my number one obviously being uh river's edge this is one cut of the dead directed by shinichiro ueda this is a wonderful meta zombie comedy film uh possibly the best zombie comedy films or best film like about filmmaking in a long while I, I would even like go as far to put this on the same level as, as Shaun of the Dead in terms of like the enjoyment factor um I know big words right but it's I don't know it's such a layered experience about uh this one maniacal director making a 30 minute unbroken zombie unbroken shot zombie film for this uh tv network what it does is very it's a very fascinating approach to this idea because the first 30 minutes of the film that you watch when you like start the film is that short film. So you see this unbroken zombie film and you start to notice all these inconsistencies and goof ups and all these like mistakes that are made on the set. And it plays out this like 30 minute film all in one take, by the way, because that's like the whole gimmick of it. And it shows credits and then the film keeps going and it like go it rewinds to about like a week ago and becomes like a, just a traditional film though like like the gimmick is of the one cut is dropped and just becomes a traditional film about that same director uh at the end of his career complete shame to his family being asked to make that film that one cut film and the rest of the film is them producing like uh in, pre in pre-production and then producing this like 30 minute short film and just all the mistakes that happened while you're that you saw while watching the film it gives like credence and explanation to all that it's it's almost like watching the film and then watching like the making of bonus featurette right next to it and it's a lot of fun it is like one of the funnest experiences i've had with that type of uh making of film or like a uh, meta making of or like meta you know filmmaker film yeah words uh and it's a like i said it's it's a lot of fun it just goes in some wild places and all of the performances are very very funny it's just a lovely sweet film about like the endurance of the filmmaker and the collective spirit and insanity that comes with making a movie professionally and i think it just nails all that very well and i would highly recommend that Okay, and for the last three uh, films that I'm going to be talking about, these are all Japan Cuts films. Uh, I didn't have that same kind of follow-through that I had with New York Asian Film Festival to take on that many films by this point. But I did review three of the Festival of New Japanese Film. Uh, again, this happens in New York City, sponsored by the Japan Society. So check them out online, I guess. And the first one I took in was this very bizarre animated horror film called Violence Voyager. Uh, the entire style of the film is done in a cutout style where all of the characters and backgrounds look like these children's book programming stuff like it looks like a cutout from a demented sesame street and this is all directed and by the one-man crew of yuji cha who has like made a career of him making really disturbing short films that have occasionally break out into the west and 
I don't know about this one. If you can get past the visuals and the really disturbing elements where it goes, like all, all like of these really creepy, gory stuff that it, it gets into, if you can stomach that and the visual style is okay with you, this is a very surreal head trip film that I would recommend actually. Uh, it, it is obviously much better enhanced with some kind of psychotropic drug because you really want to experience the weirdness of this one. But I don't know. Like, I really couldn't get into the visuals of it. So the whole cutout style uh, is interesting for the first little bit. But it kind of loses you after you realize that it's like a 90-minute film. And this is the one visual style that it's going to go with. And it doesn't do much creative. It doesn't do, like, a lot of creative things with that visual style. Uh, occasionally, you know, it sets one of the paper figures on fire or passes, like, vomit through one. And you can kind of see like, okay, that's that's a bit creative. You're, you're working with the medium a bit more. But mostly it just looks like the director is playing with paper dolls in front of your eyes. And the story it tells is very disturbing. Uh, it's about these two kids who discover a theme park or like a front for a theme park uh, before they are like entrapped into this mad scientist machinations of turning these guests into food for its mutated son. It, it There's a lot more to it. Not a lot of it is explained, unfortunately, or explained very well, but it just goes with it. And you're, you're not really watching for the plot. You're watching for, like, the, the visuals and what he does with this idea, what is trying to, like, portray these very disturbing elements, just but through this uh, children's book aesthetic. I, I think it works for the most part, but again, you have to really be there for this level of weirdness. You have to be really, you have to be into the, uh, the visuals before you can really give it any benefit of the doubt and the next film i don't have much to say about uh we make antiques directed by masaharu taki it's kind of this reverse i would say heist film because in, instead of trying to steal something from like a wealthy business owner like an ocean's 11 it's trying to fool them into buying a antique that they make uh they're trying to pass off uh a pot that they make as belonging to Senno Rikio Chaki, who is like a very important uh, poetic figure in... Sorry, it's Senno Rikio. Um, that's his name. Uh, Chaki is uh, what they're... The tea utensil that they're trying to pass off. And he's like a very famous poet in Japanese history. And it just doesn't... It just doesn't work. It's, it's a very boring film. Uh, the characters are barely there to begin with. It doesn't go many places. Uh... Lead actor uh, Kichi Nakai, who plays uh, Norio Koiki, who is like an antiques dealer who tries to, who essentially buys people out of their antiques for like cheap prices, not telling them what they're actually worth, a very sc big scumbag. I, I just wasn't here for it. It's just kind of boring. It, it lasts way too long. The heist isn't really that thrilling. And all the elements to get it into place don't come together. You don't really feel that lead up to the big. Uh, pull off at the end it just kind of falls into itself at the end and they they're successful but you know it just doesn't feel as dynamic or as exciting as it should yeah i just wasn't here for it uh the, again the cast is very very entertaining but i just couldn't get into it and so the last film i'm going to talk about today the one that the last one i took in was kind of like the standout of japan cuts this is the latest film from Nobuhiko Obayashi. And if you don't know that name, it's probably because you don't follow uh, 
psychedelic, weird, and experimental cinema of Japan in the 1970s and 80s. He is the maverick director of House, that 1977 film about the six girls going to the haunted house that uh, the Criterion Collection put out uh, recently. Yeah, he is a he is quite the experimental director, and his tastes are very esoteric in what he thinks cinema should be, and that's held up in this one, uh, this film from 2017. It kind of sh- it's kind of like proving to us that he still has it in terms of like he's able to make us see through his perspective and kind of warp our sensibilities through his esoteric visual style unfortunately though it doesn't have legs this whole experiment uh doesn't really go anywhere it's an epic film by the way it is uh, 169 minutes long and it's about this rural seaside town and the children of that rural seaside town, all played by adults for some weird reason, and how they are adjusting to their lives knowing that World War II, it takes place in 1941, knowing that World War II is encroaching in on them, and the genuine loss of innocence over a couple, like a couple summers between each other, and how their friendships change, and how uh, their ideologies conflict with, you know, the, the national ideology, and so on and so forth. And... I don't know about this one, honestly. Um, I was kind of here for a lot of the set design. This is a very dynamic-looking film. Uh, it, all, it has all these painterly backgrounds, and it keeps up with um, Obayashi's trend, where he makes special effects purposely look bad to really kind of confront your ideas of veracity in filmmaking. And the problem is, with like two and a half hours at his disposal... He seems to have a little problem where he just kind of loses interest. Uh, a lot of the film, like a lot of like the weirdness that he has in his uh, visual style, it really just kind of breaks down to, um, how do I put it? A, a lot of like needless experimentation. Like for any scene that he's shooting, he needlessly zooms in or mirrors an image or uh, cuts back to something or like uh, changes the perspective for... Like, no discernible reason other than it just seems like the director is trying to fight with his own boredom. It's kind of like how I framed it in my review. You, you're kind of here for, like, the ideas behind it, the concept, the theme of the genuine loss of innocence and within the war encroaching. But it just doesn't build to anything significant. And that kind of uh, visual anarchy that he uh, specialized in back in the 70s and 80s, it seems to have waned a bit or hasn't progressed since then. Because back in the 70s or 80s when like there was less at his disposal and he had to really work with the special effects of the time, he got a lot more creative with this one where it's a lot of like computer generated images and green screen. It just feels hollow in a sense. It feels like since that, uh, since making House, this director hasn't evolved at all. I, I have no, like I think someone will get something out of uh, Hanagatami. It's a very, like I said, it's a very comprehensive look at this, uh, at these characters and it it has like this painterly uh surrealism to it and i think someone will get out something out of it but i'm not that person i still like the film i think you should watch it like once but i don't ever see myself coming back to it because i just can't commit to like a three-hour epic where it doesn't feel like it has its affairs in order and it's just really trying to trying way too hard to shock you with like these uh, very slight visual tweaks here and there. So yeah, that's, it's not the best film that the director's done. Obviously, that, that distinction belongs to House or his uh, Sada Abe uh, biopic. But no, he's still got it. He, he's still there making these films. And I 
say you support him if you can. So that's going to wrap it up for this bonus episode of all the films that I watched at New York Asian Film Festival and Japan Cuts. Again, you can catch all those reviews up at filmpulse.net. I suggest you follow Film Pulse at uh, Twitter and on Facebook. And you can also follow me uh, personally at Cinema Creep on Twitter. And also you can check out uh, Egg and Night's WordPress at uh, where we post all our episodes where you're going to put I'm going to post this episode at Egg Night Podcast WordPress, and then obviously on Twitter at Egg Night Podcast and all the things. It's pretty much standard across the board there. SoundCloud, for example, is just Egg Night. So, yeah, that's going to do it for us. Uh, thank you for listening. If you did, uh, we promise we'll be back to the regular format uh, next week after Ruby gets back from her family vacation. So, yeah, take it easy. Bye.